Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. Welcome back. I think this is number 92. I'm your host, Adam Duritz, counting my way towards your other host. <laughs> James Campion, how are you? I am pretty good, pretty good. Part three. Part three of Prince. Purple Rain. We are now about to embark on a period in which Prince absolutely not only takes off in popularity and influence, and I've always argued that this record, along with a few others, were the most influential records of the 80s, but he takes off creatively, artistically with this record, even though he's done amazing work with Dirty Mind and with, um, with certainly the first album, Dirty Mind, and then um, Controversy, this, I think, is a leap to another level. Yeah, and it's not just the work he's doing for himself. Uh, he's got two or three other bands going at this point. Uh, he's writing songs for other people. And as we'll show you in these next two podcasts, aside from the work he's doing on this record, which is a double album in and of itself and a, like a wealth of just a gush of great material, he had three other records <laughs> that just sat in his vault basically at this point, which nobody really heard most of until... Quite honestly, this year. Yeah, and thanks um, to my friend uh, sitting to my left here, uh, as a holiday gift, he got me the box set for, we're talking, of course, about 1999. And I got to tell you, it is well worth getting it if you're a Prince fan. And if you dig on some of the things we're going to be playing you the next couple of weeks, so much great stuff that I had never heard. And for a crazy freak fan of his like me, that is a big statement. Yeah, this this of all the box sets I've gotten recently is the one that, like, Holy shit. The wealth of material. It's almost like buying one of those Nuggets box sets. There's so much great shit. It's like a new Prince album for me. It's fan. Yeah, it's like it's like two or three new Prince yeah, albums, really actually. Um, there's, a live, there's a live show on there, which is fantastic. A yeah. live DVD. An incredible box set. So we're going to be concentrating the next couple weeks on 1999, but not just that, because, my God, this man was prolific. Yeah, it's not just the record 1999, but everything he was doing during that period. Uh, but we're going to start you off with a song right now. I'm not going to tell you much about it, but <laughs> I heard one guy, one writer describe this song as sounding like the Rolling Stones were... It's Prince, but I heard one guy say it described it as... It sounded like the Rolling Stones, like uh, Mick and Keith and Ron sitting in their dressing room jamming together. And I don't really disagree with that. Uh, it's a high compliment. It is really cool, organic guitar, bass. It's just... I'm just I'm not going to say anything more about it. Just check out this tune.
track man to me that's just like it's so funky it's so great it does sound like a few guys sitting around in a dressing room just kind of jamming together but it's really Prince. it sounds so organic but it's really <laughs> just Prince it's yeah. Prince you gotta remember that he's laying these tracks down one at a time it's like okay I'm gonna it's two guitars there's a bass there's some of him clapping which is the only percussion on the track right. and then his vocals uh, and it's killer to me that's just a phenomenal track and how grooving and how groovy and how just like perfectly natural and organic it sounds. Yeah, it's harkening back to, to the Journey Mind sound. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that I think is important to realize about Prince, about how creative he is. If he had been focused on doing an update of Dirty Mind on this record, then that song, which is called Vagina, would have been on it, would have been a, a single, would have been a single. Know? And it's resonant today. It's a transsexual Anthem. Anthem. And and he had this way back, you know, when I was reading Beautiful Ones, which again is an autobiography that came out just towards the end of the year, uh, which he was working on when he passed. He had drawings back in the early 80s of this vagina character. He wanted to make this a character, and then eventually he wanted to name... Uh, Vanity that we'll talk about Vanity. that. We we'll talk about it. We get later, to that. But, but he had this whole plan for vagina as a like a, as a concept. I mean, he could have done a whole album based on that, sounding like that. But the the thing is, this box set, this period in 1999, the 1999 period, which would have been 81, 82, is amazing because he's got these songs in him, but he knows what he wants 1999 to sound like. He knows it. Want he wants it to sound modern keyboard laden really really cool electronica and that doesn't fit but he's still writing great great songs yeah no he knows what he wants it to be and that's the interesting thing about these two podcasts we're going to play you a number of spectacular songs that are not on these records and the reason is because or any record for that matter yes I mean sometimes <laughs> they turn out later there were songs like uh Bold Generation, which ended up being New Power Generation oh, years later when he right. did that record there are things on here that turn out to be 
there's a song we'll play you in, in the second of the podcast, I think, that is reminiscent to me of like a slowed down version of Let's Go Crazy. Um, but he knows what he wants to do, and he has a particular album in mind here. And so it doesn't matter how good these songs are. If they don't fit that project, they're not going on it. Um, there are songs here that were among his most his favorite songs he ever wrote. And he, you know, one of them we'll talk about, he repeatedly brought it up and considered putting it on records and just never found the right record for it. It's an incredible song. And these songs are fully produced for a record because you have to remember the guy is doing everything by himself anyway. If you listen to uh, Controversy, if you listen to specifically Dirty Mind, that's what that is. That that was ready to be recorded. It's recorded. It's mastered. It's not a demo. That's him recording something. And and if you look at, listen to that chorus, half girl, half you know, it's amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's a great hook. It's an excellent recording. So you'll hear the guy does not just lay stuff down quickly. He's putting together record, full records, and then never releasing them. And it's very different from the songs which he did send to other people. It, uh, there's a, well, a box set we, we'll talk about at some point. It's called Originals, which came out last year, which is a, a series of the songs that he did send to other people, All like right. Manic Monday to the Bangles. Uh, Glamorous uh, Life Nothing is Compares on there. to You, right. which went to The Family, and then later to Sinead O'Connor. Uh, and, and Sex Shooter, which went to Vanity Six. Those demos are not like this re- recording. No, this they're, the singing record. on them, they're like maps to tell these bands what the songs are going to be. Either he's going to do it or he's going to show them how to do it. Uh, and they're, But the vocals are sung like maps. They're not sung like magnificently like that is. Right. Um, and produced and, and played magnificently. He wrote a lot of songs and gave them to other bands. So the fact that these songs didn't go to other bands is an illustration of how important they were to him. Some of them were just too personal and they were very much for him. Or he would have set them up with other bands. And he never... A lot of these he never did. Some he did. And we'll talk about that as well. But uh, it's an interesting thing that to, to be able to record material that's this good... Um, I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I really love Bruce Springsteen. And I was very excited to get that tracks record when it came out, what, 20 or 30 years ago, which was all the outtakes from all those records. And one of the things that I realized was that he's just the best editor ever because none of those songs, with a couple exceptions, were really good enough to make it on those records. It wasn't just a matter of them being like thematically wrong. I didn't think most of them were good enough. With a, maybe one or two exceptions... He just had been able to judge his own material really well. Some of these Prince songs, like Vagina, for instance, that could have made it on any record. And it's just that it doesn't fit the records. And he has a thematic idea in mind. And he's not going to put something on a record that's not right. Right. And speaking of thematic, let's just wrap it up. You and I talked very extensively in those podcasts about Dirty Mind. And, or the first two podcasts we've done, uh, specifically Controversy, in which he, he speaks a lot about his, his central themes, which is male, female, gay, straight, black, white, this infusing, this incumbent. And that's what Vagina is about. I mean, this, oh, yeah. this half boy, half girl, best of both worlds. He's breaking that down, or, you know, in a way, he's writing a sci fi concept of that, but it's very much within that structure of what he's saying. But by 1999, he has moved on. And, that doesn't fit, but it would have fit really great on those other rec- on those other two records, thematically and also musically. This record has a lot of uh, purple comes up three or four times in it. Yes, uh, it is. It does mention the revolution and the little football underneath? Yes, upside down, written backwards, right? Isn't it? Yes, backwards, uh, upside down. There's a few. Yeah, there's a few things in which Prince 
comes out. Wait, well, he's got a phallic symbol on one of the nine. It's incredible. That that yeah. cover is so cool. It's very very creative. Uh, the inner sleeve has him with the guitar and the band in the background. So it's he's 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 creating a band thing again, as you mentioned with controversy. Yeah. But he will go out into this is his first major tour. Uh, in which he will become a big star thanks to uh, Little Red Corvette and 1999 and MTV, which we talked about in an earlier podcast where MTV first starts to play Black Axe. This album is mostly synths and drum machines, but it sounds anything but cold. It is not... It is the 80s. It is synths and drum machines, but it doesn't sound like a lot of those bands like Flock of Seagulls or New Order even or Depeche, Depeche Mode, Mode yeah. who are making this sort of chilly inhuman sound although he has some things on this record where he purposely does go for those kinds of things right but he does have a lot of talking heads devo that kind of style yeah yeah and the melodies are as we've mentioned before the melodies are so good a lot of this record is played on oberheim's obsx synthesizer that came out and maybe the most important development of the day the lin lm1 drum machine which he which enables you to program drum machines and also program samples at an incredibly well for him at, at it with an incredible facility, almost as quick as playing drums. There are times in this album where I'm not sure whether it's drums or Lin drums. There are there are songs where like I can hear there's a a synth drum. In some track cases, in there's there, both. But there, it also sounds. But but it, it may not be because he's also so good at programming the LM1 that he's programming samples as well as right. as as, as uh, electronic drums. And those samples, when he programs them, may sound like real drums. It's hard to tell where exactly. I mean, there are places where I, I read that what it is, but it is hard as a listener to tell that's what's going on. Right. But when, when Adam's talking about samples, what we're talking about is someone will take a snare sound or a bass drum sound, an actual one recorded, and then literally sampling it to make it go on the beat to work with the Lin drum. So he combined those two things. So there's an actual drum sound, yeah. but it's electronically controlled, which he does beautifully. And we should say when he... But not or, always. Sometimes it is just an electronic drum sound. It's just the electronic drum he sound. He uses yes. both. Uh, uh, and... But go on. What we, I no, I was going to say that the very first track, we've talked about this before, and I, I really need to say this. It, as you'll see as we go through this, these series of podcasts, we saw it with Prince. On the Prince album, he opens up with I Want to Be Your Lover. That song separates for what he did with For You, and it tells you exactly what he's going to be on that record. Then he opens up Dirty Mind with the title track, Dirty Mind, and he, he introduces the sound and the theme of the record. Controversy, he opens up with the title of the record and the theme of the record. And with 1999, which again is the title of the record, he opens the record up. Listen to the unbelievable wall of sound he hits you with. It's a completely new experience to anything that's on Dirty Mind or Controversy. Completely different. Very different. I mean, since and program drums aside, one of the other things that makes this and every album Prince ever made work is his like ability to play just unbelievably, incredibly funky rhythm guitar. It is unparalleled rhythm guitar playing. And you'll hear it at places on this album where it's just... It seems like it's just chicken scratching, but it's not just pocket guitar playing. It's about the holes. When you play rhythm, when you play funk music, it's about what you play, but it's very much about where you put the holes. Where you don't play is what makes something funky because it's where the bottom drops out for a listener, and he is a master. Uh, It's also worth mentioning on this record, every track, except Delirious and Something in the Water Does Not Compute, is over five minutes long, and six tracks are over six minutes, and three are over eight minutes long. He, he's willing on this hit record to make long tracks, like to make them, to take the groove and go on the groove. It's, you know? it's one of the most experimental hit records ever. That, that is not, 
uh, hyperbole, and this is one of the reasons why I compared him a little bit to like an 80s version of the Beatles, not only because each record he's challenging you, he's changing his sound, he's pushing the envelope for his listeners, but he's making Revolver is an experimental record the way the Mothers of Invention are, but it's a pop record. And he's making pop songs with beautiful melodies, as you pointed out several times in these podcasts, incredible funky rhythms. But listen to some of these songs. There is some weird, weird shit going on. Oh, in they're there. really weird and experimental. And that's the great thing about it. It's the truth. You, you just hit it on the head. It is a hell of a thing to make an experimental record. Few people do it. It's great when they do. It is an incredibly rare thing to make an experimental record that's still a pop record, like Revolver, <laughs> like Sgt. Pepper's, like. 1999 like dirty like all these records he's making are both pushing the envelope pushing the the generationally ahead into the way music's made and also they're hits they're incredibly hooky records song after song after song uh, i and also still very very he is entirely colorblind i read a a rolling stone review from the release of this record and one of the in, in studying this right now and one of the things the guy said was Prince works like a colorblind technician who studied both Devo and Africa Bombada and the Soul Sonic Force and that is as true as you can come he is a guy who loves music he is a funk musician in a lot of ways but he is absorbing everything you know what and I then heard? moving it forward again it's true you know what I heard excuse me you know what I heard on, on Vagina I heard quite a bit of the type of work that the Clash were doing on, on London Calling and then Sandinista, which came out right then. I mean, he, there's no way he's not listening to the class and write a song like, that just sounds like something right off of, uh, of London Calling. And that is not something someone in his you know, working environment would listen to unless he went out and did it, but he had a love for these other kinds of music. Yeah, and he, uh, you know, like I said, the other person, I read one guy who compared it to the Rolling Stones sitting around in their dressing room playing because... You know, whatever bad experiences he had on tour with them, he clearly loved the Rolling Stones as much as they loved him. Right. And uh, and the Stones were that way. The Stones yeah. took all that black music and all the 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 pop uh, sounds of England, and then later on the disco sounds and the funk sounds. The Stones were very much of a even though they were just five white guys, English guys. They did infuse a lot of black oh, music yeah, and American music. music. Oh yeah. Well, music of all kinds. Well, sure, they just sure. couldn't wait to absorb whatever it was. Um, so we should get to that opening song. Um, yes. It is almost made entirely on LM1 drum machines and Oberheim synths and funky guitar. Uh, and still, at the opening, one of the things you hear that make the build happen at the beginning of the song is real cymbals. You hear there, what makes the build happen is he's in there with the real cymbals. He does all these rolls on the cymbals that are really cool. Um, one of the things I also love about it is how late in the song... This is a thing that he's very, very good at. He He... He's really just repeating the chorus melody late in the song, but he finds all these different variations and alternate ways to do it by bringing in alternate melodies with someone else singing at times. Uh, the last two minutes, last third of the song are almost all just variations over the groove music repeated, and he's finding ways to make it fresh by upping each time around a little little something different, adding a little more. Uh, he goes from the chorus repeating to repeated just 1999s. Then he goes through these don't you want to go 1999 variations. Yes. And then the party, everybody, let's right. party. All the variations on party. Uh, and he does it again, maybe even better in Little Red Corvette, uh, ending with, of course, beginning with the computerized voice saying, uh, don't worry, we won't hurt Lee. 
hurt you. you. We only want you. I only want you to have some, some fun. fun. Either the voice of God or the voice of the computer God that rules over the earth right then. Right. Or Hal and Hal in a way. Because this yeah. reminds me very much. The police came out with a record, which is my favorite police record uh, in 1981 called Ghost in the Machine, based on Arthur Kessler's work uh, that Sting was very much inter- interested at the time. The idea that, that eventually humanity will lose its humanity because we're using too much technology, which is amazing when you think about the world we live in today. And then that coupled with the fact that Prince had just seen, do you remember? You, I know you remember this. It was narrated by, um, what's his name there, uh, that did uh, War of the Worlds, o- o- Orson, Orson Welles, Welles on Nostradamus. In 1979-80, they did a TV thing on Nostradamus and all of his, and in there, Nostradamus apparently predicted that at the end of the 20th century, the world will end. And Prince thought, well, that's a great idea for a song. <laughs> and it reminds me very much of Party Up, in which he talks about, you guys all blow yourself up. I just want to have a good time. We're all going to be dancing here. And in, in essence, it's, it's sort of a nihilistic song, but it's also a look past all this, this, this stuff like Ronnie talked to Russia, like the end of the world, and everybody just party. Party like it's 1990. In essence, he's saying party like this is the last day you'll be on Earth. And in a lighthearted way, though, 2000 party over. Oops. Oops. Out of time. <laughs> out of time. I, when I was a kid, I first, when the first time I heard it, I thought it was it's out of party over, it's out of time. But no, it's 2000 party over. Oops. Oops, we're out of time. Out of time. Yeah, good luck. We're not going to make it to 2000, basically. <laughs> but that's also a very interesting melody there. A weird, again, experimental melody that is the chorus of this song. Oh, and one more thing. For a guy who we're used to doing everything by himself and does play almost everything on this record... The first voice you hear on this record is not Prince's. The second voice you don't hear on the record yeah. is not Prince's. Originally, this was a three-part harmony sung by Lisa Coleman and Prince and Des Dickerson, and it just wasn't sitting right to him, and he came up with the idea of, let's do it differently. You sing, Lisa, you sing your line first, and then Des Dickerson sings the line, right. then Prince sings his line, yes. then the three of them all sing together. Uh, you know, and so, it's so for cool. a guy who we're used to dominating the music he's a part of so completely that you never see anyone else even play, right? He opens this album in which he's the first. He's really exploring like the feeling of a band because even if it wasn't Prince and the Revolution yet on the record, there are other people on this record occasionally, and he wanted you to feel like it was a band when they made the videos. This was incredible. The the fog in the club. As the, as the video yes. for this comes on, and you see the band up there on stage, and the first thing you see, and then you it's see Lisa video. sing, oh, yeah. and then Des sing, and then Prince sing, and then them all sing together, and you get the sense of, this is a rock and roll funk band, like the bands I'm used to loving, this is a whole band portrayed on stage. He wasn't saying that, you know, the record wasn't c- credited to Prince and the Revolution until Purple Rain, right. but he wanted you to feel that it was Prince and the Revolution right here, song one beginning of the album right it kind of reminds me of that sly stuff that you and i played for the um woodstock series yeah yeah well that's always been a big part of him i think that sense of like like cynthia's on the horns you know that the sense of it being a band the same thing that uh lenny kravitz later was trying to recreate in all those videos that that feeling of what princeton revolution had and what sly and the family stone had absolutely the drummer who looks so much like is it cynthia robinson the, the trumpet player and singer for Sly and the Family Stone, his drummer looked so much like right, her. Right, right. Um, it looked like a combination of their bands and... Uh, well, Hendrix. You always and had Hendrix the, and the one experience. guy always looked like Noel Redding with yeah, the crazy I mean, hair, yeah. It was really the imagery he was trying to put forward, but it's actually really happening here with Prince. Yep. And uh, I guess we should just start off and play it. Uh, and it should. ends, of course, with the famous line. Mommy, why does, why does everybody, everybody have, have a bomb? bomb? <laughs> here it's we go. It's so great. 1999. Don't worry, I won't 
hurt you. I only want you to have some fun.
got a lion in my pocket. Uh-huh. And he's ready to roar. That is fucking so badass, the way repeated shit, but bringing in all these extra like vocal lines. and vo- oh, it's inc- Sorry, you were going to say something. No, no, that's so true. Uh, a couple of things. I love when he brings back the deep voice um, with the chorus. And that's tough to do because he's trying to match. Because when you do the slow, deep voice, it's slower. Yeah. So it's not, and you can see it's just making 1999. It's just making, he has to speed it up a little bit. But he doesn't uh, mind he's working missing, with tapes, so it's incredible. Yeah, he doesn't mind the time flipping at times. He doesn't mind vocals that are staggered and don't. No, he exactly. goes crazy with that later on. He in his loves career. to do that. He does a lot on controversy all over that record. Yeah, he's he doing does. Vocals like it's that. It's true. Uh, secondly, uh, and you, you, you told me to, to, to make sure I make mention of this um, on the podcast because we were talking about it as the songs were playing. Normally when you get these, these remastered things, and I've gotten hundreds of them over the years, CDs or digital remasters, they're okay. Some are better, less hissy. I remember the Beatles came out with theirs in the, I think, 2010, maybe 2009. That was significant. And also the mono cuts of the Beatles and the Stone stuff. But this is truly one of the best remasters of any record that I've heard. I mean, it, it's, it sounds fantastic. It really, really is. It's totally worth getting. And um, the other thing I was going to say is, I was going to echo what you said about the guitar playing there at the end. It is, it's a master class in funk guitar playing. I, I, I mean, certainly James Brown's band, that was the beginning of it. Later on, Sly, we talked about Sly. And, and then... Um, Chic, Nile Rogers, Chic. That's the yeah. first time I ever saw it live. Was Nile Rogers playing, and I was men. And Nile Rogers playing on "Let's Dance," the David Bowie record. Correct. Is, is magnificent rhythm guitar playing. Right, and it's just just like you said. He's stopping. He's waiting that extra beat before he hits it on the first go around, and then he double times it on the second. But it's very specific playing. Yeah, like you said, it's not. No, no, it's not. He's not just playing in the in the time in the pocket. It's. Those are there's a melody that. Yeah, he's playing a very specific thing, and the holes, the stops, the start. There's a lot of his rhythm playing has so much specificity to it. It it is very detailed, very worked out, and I mean he's wrote a. I find a quote. There's a quote in here somewhere. He's where he's like. Uh, funk guitar playing, you know, it's all about the holes. He says it in there somewhere, yeah, like true. it's all about the holes, man. The holes you leave—that's what make it funky. And when he this this album has a lot of big band sounds in it to me too. Um, it, the keyboards can be horns; you could hear them sort of in a Benny Goodman kind of way. The way he puts them on top of each other, harmonizes them, doubles them, and even the guitar part that could yeah, that could be you know any kind of Take the A Train or, you know, any of those songs from uh, that period. So he's, he's mining from a lot of different styles. I mean, when, you, when you're that well-versed in different kinds of music, you can go and – it's like a library. You know, you, you can go and pull it when you need it to fashion these songs. He says at one point uh, – uh, there's a quote on this album where he says, I've had this Roger Lynn drum machine since 1981. It's one of the first drum machines ever created. It takes me five seconds to put together a beat on this thing. I mean, he, he was like – same way other people get good at playing an instrument, he got good at playing that drum, that Lin drum machine. He, he plays drums all around this stuff too, but man, he really just, it was, it's killer stuff. And that's, that's when I talk about this record, Jelly Bean Benitez's work on the first Madonna record. Uh, there were several records, certainly, 
uh, everything that's on Off the Wall, which is 79. There's like two or three records at the beginning of the 80s that really everyone kept taping. I mean, really, all the way up until when hip-hop starts or like the hairband uh, period. When you look from like the early MTV period, 81, 82, through to like 87, 88, there are dozens of records that all sound like two or three records, and this is one of them. And the reason why is because the foundation of these keyboards and the foundation of using the Lynn drum machine, which is going to be ubiquitous in the coming years, specifically in soul and funk music, Prince has already got this shit down, and he's putting it in a more experimental way than anybody that will use it five or six years from now. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And that continues on the next song, which is the one that really broke him out. I mean, this is a song that broke MTV wide open to another video of the revolution on stage. Right. Um, Fantastic at, dancing. It shows him as a wonderful dancer. Yeah, and, and this is the thing where, like, MTV was just only playing white music right then. And there's a – I know that Walter Yetnikoff, I don't know who it was on behalf of, C- CBS Records, though, came and said, if you don't branch out and play other music – we're going to pull all of our records off. And at that point, CBS is a massive, or is it Columbia that he owns at that point? Whatever it is. It's well, CBS a, was, the, I think, the English version. One of the of arms Columbia. of Columbia records, yeah. yeah, which is one of the three, two or three biggest, Atlantic, Columbia. Those are the biggest record companies right then, Warner Brothers. Right. Um, and he just basically says, if you don't cut this out and play some other music, I don't know, it was on, must have been on behalf of one of his artists, we're pulling everything off your off right. TV. And they, you know, I don't know if that's what made them do it. I'm sure it was a variety of factors. Michael Jackson coming around. And Michael Jackson also forced the issue. And also, not, not, and this is very important because when I wrote Bowie's eulogy for the Aquarian, I looked this stuff up. Bowie, as early as 81, when they first started, the first six or eight months, Bowie did a bunch of those. Remember that I Want My MTV things? Those oh, yeah, things they got yeah. the stay the police do it. Uh, Pete Townsend did it. Bowie did it. And, he, and right before he did it, he goes, I'm only going to do this if you guys consider playing more soul funk acts on here. And they, they snubbed him, and he said he would never come back on there. And when he did the record Let's Dance with Nile Rodgers, he wasn't going to let them play the Let's Dance video unless they did that. And, and Bowie was a big part of pushing the envelope there because he was a huge rock star. That's only and he one was year making later. Big, yeah, he's making a big comeback in I mean, there, there's definitely – I'm sure it's a factor that year that two of the – you know, that, that, that Mike – the Thriller is the same year and, uh, and 1989. Both are in 1982. Uh, I don't know if, what else that year was making it an issue, but I, I remember very specifically – those two records being the videos for them being all over it. Specific Billy Jean, right, is the one, sure, the first one that we remember seeing. Billy Jean, and then 1999. Or I don't know what the dates are for those two records, but uh, this this song was a huge hit. I mean, what could you possibly say about this song? It's so groundbreaking. It's such a combination of cool rock and roll, blues, funk. It's one of the great original songs of the 1980s. It really, really is. I, I, I don't think you could say enough about how cool this song is. Oh, man, it's, it's an unbelievable melody. The way the vocals are arranged are incredible. The fact that it's mostly, you'll hear it when it starts, it's really just this synthesizer, but the melodies on it are so, and, and the way he plays it is so warm. Mm. that it, when, And when it sweeps mm. up into the choruses, yes. you just can't, you, can't, uh, you can't resist it. This is another song with, with other people playing on it. Uh, he had Des Dickerson play... Not all lead. the guitars on the record, but all the guitar solos on this yeah, song. Yeah. Our Dickerson's playing the lead on this song all mm. over it. Um, he is. It's a great lead. Uh, the the breakdown in the middle is so fucking incredible. All of a sudden, everything clears out, and it's like, with all these piles of vocals, but they're so dynamic. Girl, you got an ass like I've never seen, and the ride... 
the ride is so smooth. You must be a limousine. It's and then back in the chorus, it is an unbelievable arrangement of a vocal of yes. a breakdown using just these vocals that just like sweep in and out. Just the lyric though in there. Girl, you got an ass like I've never seen, and the ride, the ride is so smooth. You must be a limousine. Yes. I mean, what a fucking breakdown that is. It's incredible. And like we talked about in 1999, the entire latter half of the song, the last 238 of a five-minute song, is just a series of chorus repeats and sort of groove repeats to the breakdown, which then comes out with more chorus repeats. And it goes from those choruses to the ride to the ground, the ride to oh, the ground, the so vocal good. trade-off with Lisa Coleman, and then his series of oohs that go out to the end chorus, then chorus with the guitar chords behind it, chorus with a guitar solo over it, then the breakdown, then chorus, chorus, to the right to the ground trade-offs and the ooze, and they all build so none of it seems repetitive. But it is literally the, the whole last, more than half the song right. is taken up by choruses, chorus repeats, and this uh, the breakdown and the outros. You know, like and, the, and the shame of that is, on the single and on the video, that's not on there. They cut it. There's a single edit. Yeah. And when I first got this record and heard that, I'm like, my God, once again. But again, getting back to the chorus part. Little red Corvette. It's such a great idea. That is right out of Phil Spector, Brian Wilson. It's like a Shirelle song. It's a Shirelle song. But it's just so – and again, getting back to using the car, woman. uh, We talked about clitoris. All the things that he's using here in Little Red Corvette. But he's also telling that story. What's that story again? Whether it's the woman on the way somewhere and then she's corrupted by Prince or the woman who's somewhere and she asks him if he's gay and he takes her uptown. Here's a guy. He's chasing this un – attainable woman that he really wants to get and she's going to break him and she does she does break him it's a story song as well as a pop hit it's amazing what's going on it's the same thing uh, half boy half girl yes very good best of both I think I'm hitting those on the wrong beat but but (laughs) it's the same thing it's got a little Bo Diddley good thing Uh, apparently Lisa Coleman had a a pink a new pink like El Dorado or something she bought and he he used to always borrow it because they'd always stay. He'd always stay at their house, like her and the uh, uh, Wendy Wendy Melvoin's house in L.A. When he was when he was there, he'd stay with them. It'd be like a girl's house in Prince, and they'd always drive around in her car. He'd use the car, and it was this little pink car. And but this is all. This is such a. This is his. Uh, what I hear one person referred to as clitocentric uh, songwriting. <laughs> yeah, it's a metaphor. This yeah. one, and I mean, it's not that the song is all about a clit, but he's willing to use this imagery like this, like Raspberry Beret later, that right. is just, you know, but so I much. Horses. You know, the, 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 the euphemism for condoms and all the different things he puts in here is just so clever. It's not just purely a sex song. It's not just a seduction song. It's not just a pop song. It's got all those things in it. And as you said, the last two and a half minutes is really like this bizarre rhythm thing going on with a million voices coming in. I, it's it's it amazing. It is a perfect ar- vocal and, and like outro arrangement that is so good that it can go on for two and a half minutes straight. It literally, more than half the song. Because these are the first two songs on the record. 1999 is 614 and, and Little Red Corvette is 504. That's not, those aren't two-minute pop songs. They can be edited to that. Right. But, but they're not. And, and it doesn't matter. The truth is, they work perfectly well at 5.04. This works like this song could go on for an hour longer. At, at the rate he's going, when they end the song, it's like it could have gone on for ages. There's no sense that it needed to do anything. They could have gone back to the verses again. It's so good how he arranges these things. His sense of how to make a song uh, while sitting in a studio by himself is it's insane. It's Little Red Corvette.
<laughs> track two. Track two.
simply one of the great singles of the 1980s, period. Fantastic, fantastic song. Not just a fantastic song, but it's a fantastic record. And you put that, you made the point right before we played it. He just knew how to put songs together. He was so much a veteran of the studio by this point. And remember, he was 18 years old when Warner Brothers gave him money in which he spent way over budget on the first record. Then he reinvents himself or starts to invent the person he will be, the character, the career, Prince, in Prince. And then he strips everything down for demos and, and makes an, a, a new wave record in Dirty Mind. And then controversy, he's completely in control. He's got drum machines. He's, got the, he's playing the drums, the bass. The, and in this one, it's just he just knows what the hell he's doing, and you can hear it on that song. It's, it is one of his great structural production masterpieces. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic song. I mean, it's just that drums. The drums are so weird. Yeah, those keyboards that sound like someone playing a guitar with the volume and then pedaling the music, the volume up. And those great guitars. Speaking of guitars, great guitar sound in the choruses. You know, it's like this great fuzzy. Listen to it again. You know, when when you're done with the podcast, it's fantastic. Um. We should say, what did I want to say? There was some other point I wanted to make about this. Oh, yeah. How, what was the, uh, the chart of this? Did this make it to number one? I don't oh, know if no it idea. did. I, I never look at it. I'm going to look that up. I'm just curious because I remember that. Wait, was... Literary Corvette, here it is, charted at uh, Australian number eight, Canadian number five, New Zealand number 12, UK number two, Billboard Hot 100 number six. No. That was his biggest hit since I Want to Be Your Lover, which is what you pointed out earlier in, in our podcast. And even though he was breaking ground and getting a lot of love from the critics and starting to get played on MTV, it wasn't until 1999, uh, this song first, and then 1999 that really put him uh, in the pantheon, in the discussion with the, one of the great uh, uh, stars of the early 1980s. So Stevie Nicks gets married uh, about a year later. In May of 83, I think, is the date this happens on. I think it's May 19th, 1983. She's driving up to Santa Barbara for her honeymoon with her new husband, and Little Red Corvette comes on the radio. She starts humming along to the song and yells to her husband, you got to pull over in the next town. we got to buy a, like a tape recorder. And he's like, what? She goes, i got a song. we got to buy a tape recorder. They pull over. She's come up with this song in her head, singing along to Little Red Corvette. They get a tape recorder. She sings it. She gets to the honeymoon suite that night. I guess gets out her guitar or something and records the demo to the song in the honeymoon suite that night up in Santa Barbara. So she goes to record the song because she's making her next record. She goes into the studio to record the song. Before she does, she calls Prince and says, Hey, I'm driving up to my honeymoon after on my wedding day. I heard Little Red Corvette, and I wrote this entire song I love the song. It's a different song, but basically it's written to the music of Little Red Corvette. <laughs> and uh, and I just want to clear it with part. you first. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no problem. Let's just do a 50-50 split on the publishing. Anyways, I'm in L.A. I'll come down to the studio right now if you want. He comes down to the studio, plays all the synths on this song, I believe. Maybe sings a little bit. I'm not sure. Helps with the vocals. And then just gets up and leaves. She said it was like a ghost <laughs> right. had passed through the studio. It was like yes. a purple ghost. A very small purple like fairy had come in laid down magic all over a track, got up and left. And that was that. And this song ends up being a huge big hit, hit. A big hit for her. It actually comes out on May 19th, 1983. Right. So that stuff must have happened the year before. Sure. But, but it was a big hit, right? That's when she wrote it. When yeah. she heard it, yeah. We just want to play this because it's not, I mean, it's not my favorite Stevie Nicks song, but I do like this song. 
And I never realized this was the case until reading about this record and studying up on this, doing research for this. I think you already knew it, but yeah, I, didn't I didn't realize this. I didn't know. I did know it. Only be, This is what I knew. I knew Prince played on Stand Back. That's all I knew. And then I went to see Stevie Nicks a couple of Aprils ago and because Wadi Wachtel is in my book, played with, uh, with Warren and, and a bunch of those guys from California. He is Stevie Nicks' band leader. So yeah. he said, hey, come by. So I went and I got to backstage. It was great hanging out with Wadi. And the show that she put on was basically 50%. It was like storytellers. She just told stories. And she told that story. And Aaron and I were like, what? Because she told – she was like, I basically copped Little Red Corvette. And then I felt guilty. So I called up Prince to apologize. And he's like, all right, I'll come down and play on it. That night and comes down, plays for like three hours and then leaves. They never see him again. And he's on this – but – I, I want to ask people to listen to. The reason why we want to play it after Little Red Corvette is because of this story. But do you know that Stand Back, Stand? This is Stand Back, by the way. We yeah. should mention. It, it reminds me of the end part where he's like, "Right to the ground." Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. That's. Yeah. The, I think that's what the what she's talking about, right? Because well, not, I think the whole musical thing is basically the same chords. I'm hearing in my head right now. It seems like it's very similar to me. All right, let's listen. But, let's uh, listen up. Yeah. <laughs> there was something. Is it you who told me a story? Somebody asked her once. Well, but how did you just get Prince on the phone? And she's like, "Oh, because I'm Stevie Nicks." Yeah, yeah. Because like, yeah. like, yeah, most of us can't get Prince on the phone, but Stevie Nicks sure as hell can. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, maybe I could. I don't know. I, could, I can't now, but maybe I could have then. Uh, who knows? Um, That's a good line. Anyways, it's like when Cindy Lauper was here, and you were like, "Hey, you know, I'm your friend." Remember when you said, yeah. "I went to how did you?" She goes, "How did you get tickets to my play?" She goes, "Oh, I know you." That's what you said. I called you up, and you gave me tickets. Oh yeah, because <laughs> she, yeah, she didn't think I'd seen uh, uh, Kinky Boots. Kinky Boots, and yeah, I was like, yeah. "No, I seen Kinky Boots. I saw it ages ago." And she goes, "Oh, how did you get tickets?" I'm like, "You got them for." <laughs> I called up my friend who's you and got tickets. <laughs> the woman who wrote the play. Yeah. So uh, this is, we don't spend too much time on it, but I'm going to play it for you right now because we just played Little Red Corvette. It's not just that he wrote all this great music itself. It's not just that he wrote all this great music for everybody else because he did. A million different artists got hits from Prince. But the fact is that everybody's listening to Prince then. And one of them, Stevie Nicks, happens to be driving on the highway. And this happens. This is Stand Back.
<laughs> so that is uh, that is Stevie's uh, version of Little, Little Red, Red Corvette. Corvette. Her cover of Little Red Corvette, which is also called "Stand Back," um, which is uh, the the their wedding day was January nineteenth of eighty three. So uh, it was they managed to write it, have a honeymoon, record it, and put it out in under four months, or almost exactly four months. So that's uh, that's pretty impressive, right there. It is. That's off her second record, and um, so getting back to Prince and nineteen ninety nine. So nineteen ninety nine is a double album. So the first, which we're, what we're going to do in these podcasts is we're going to play the first record, and then some songs that we talked about at the top of the podcast that he left off of the record, uh, and some really cool stuff. And then in the next podcast, we'll play the rest of the album or, or selected tracks off the rest of the album. But in this case, we're going to play the entire first side, which is only three songs because, as Adam mentioned, they're long. Um, and this one is called Delirious. And I think the cool thing, there's an excellent long version of this on this box set, which is, is, is really revelatory for me because he does a lot of the stuff that you say you love about this song which is the keyboards are very very warm and fun on this and this is one of those songs too that remind me of like a big band well yeah it starts it definitely starts with a lin lin drum loop on this and then a little bit of synth bass uh and then the keyboard comes in and uh and then this really wild great sounding bass guitar but the keyboard on this is what this is what i love about him he's using synthesizers but he's so creative with them like the Oberheim synth, he plays it on this song like it's the warmest, goofiest organ song ever. It's very Little Richard esque this right. song. I mean, it's almost like someone. I talked about this on on Dirty Mind, sounding like someone was playing really well tuned rubber bands. And on this one, he sounds to me like he's playing melodies on people's balloons and whoopee cushions. Like literally, <laughs> this sounds like if I had to imagine what it would sound like to play balloons, it would see this song. the The sound shapes he makes. Uh, it's he plays it like Little Richard organ keyboards, but it it he's got this sound that sounds like a balloon. He's playing. I mean, it's so creative and so original. It's just an incredible sound, and he's kind of singing that like hiccuping Little Richard right. kind of. It's a very rock and roll it. song. Sure is. Yeah, yeah. But it's all synthesizers and synths, and you know some bass. I it just with those instruments, he's so creative sitting there by himself uh, playing them. There's a there's a quote that I found in the box where he said um, one of the reasons he liked to play alone, he said, when I'm recording, I could have orgasm on my mind, and my bass player could have pickles on his. It makes it a little rough when you listen back to a track and it's not played with the same intensity on the other instruments as you're playing on yours. And he that's why that he likes to do a lot of things by himself, yep. because if it's by himself, if, it's, if he's thinking about orgasms, so are all the other guys Everybody's playing, because they're all him. Yes. Um, and so this is like a, a near-perfect piece of music to me. Uh, yes, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. This is Prince... This is delirious. Love the ending. The baby cooing. (laughs) It's like he doesn't know what to do, so I'll just end it. (laughs) Here's delirious. Mama, I just can't wait to rest Cause I get delirious 
When I saw Prince in, in 88 for the Love Sexy Tour, he had uh, Eric Leeds and Atlanta Bliss on saxophone and uh, trumpet, respectively, and they did that. And it's just so funny. Again, it comes back to, you know, they, they did the whole... It's just so big, man, you know, when you hear that. And, and he's got that all in his head when he's doing it. It's such a fun song, really. It's uh, a true old-style rock and roll song, and he's selling the shit out of it. It really, really is. So that's the end of side one of 1999. Uh, and side two opens with like a fucking amazing song. Yeah, Let's pretend we're married. You know, it's about dealing with the pain of someone who's left you by conflating love and sex. Or, you know, maybe not conflating. Maybe it's just about trying to make sex mean more and be more powerful by letting yourself believe it's love. Prince, this is the great thing about his writing is he feels all he feels all his like fun slash like sex songs. With these subtle textures that add depth and make them more than just one-note songs, you know, even if you don't notice they're happening, he's making a song about rebound sex more than a song about fucking by making the chorus, let's pretend we're married. And he wants these things to mean more. He wants to fuck to get over her, but without stressing the point to make it maudlin or mopey, he also wouldn't mind just falling in love again. You know, it's the same kind of thing that makes When You Were Mine a deeper song than it, than it seems like it is at first on the surface because he has those little things that... He's showing you about the flaws in his humanity and when you are mine, that I love you more than I did when you were mine. Because now it's not just missing you, it's having had you and and losing you to someone else. You know, like he adds all this depth and humanity to these songs. Uh, also, it has one of the greatest lines 
in the history of like <laughs> vulgar sex come on. <laughs> I, I'm not saying this just to be nasty. I sincerely want to fuck the taste out of your mouth. Can you relate? Can you relate? <laughs> um, this is one of those songs. This is one of the first. We mentioned it in the last podcast, but this is one of the first ones that is specifically what I was talking about, and he does it to the nth degree with Erotic City, which is the B-side of Let's Go Crazy. When we get to Purple Rain, we'll play that. But it's, it's his funk fugue. It opens very simply with a little beat, and then he'll bring in a little keyboard part. Then he'll bring in another keyboard part. Then he'll bring in the bass, everything within two measures. Then he brings in the melody line. Then he starts singing. And this will be, I think this is the first song. It is. It's the first song that reminds us of the Prince for the, from the previous albums. That falsetto is back. And those voices are back, the, the doubling of the voices. And those really, really cool references to things like hippies. And ooh, sha sha cuckoo, yeah. That part. All the hippies, All the sing, hippies together. sing together. And, and I love the different references to things. This song breaks down into a million different character developments. But you, the real basic foundation of it is exactly what you said. It's just a girl done me wrong. I'm lonely. I look over over at the bar, and there's a gorgeous woman there, and I'm going to hit on her, and I'm going to say all the things that are in this song. It's really just nothing more than that, but he's dealing with a lot of pain and a lot of um, loss issues here. Excuse me, but I need a mouth like yours to help me forget the girl that just walked out the door. <laughs> I love, you know, he, he's going to make it salacious, but there's more to it. You know, the chorus, little darling, if you're free for a couple of hours, if you ain't busy for the next seven years... Let's pretend we're married and go all night. You know, he is, it is a come on. It is about let's fuck. But he's not just saying for a couple hours. He's like, you know, I want to be with you. I want to stay with you. You know, they may not get married. They may just pretend they're married. But one of the things that that pretending you're married means is staying together. You know, if you ain't busy for the next seven years. Right. And and that's the first time he uses seven. He'll use seven or 17 a lot in... um in future records, it, it, it becomes a key number for him in, in, a, in a biblical sense and also in a touchstone sense. He uses a lot of number references, but yeah, just because people say, well, why seven years? Well, you know, he just wanted to make it for a long term, but he uses seven because, you know, that's the number he wanted to pull out. But this song is, forget about it, even lyrically, vocally. He's just playing it up beautifully. I mean, there's so many cool little parts. We mentioned the, the, uh, the, all the hippies sing together. There's so many. He does some great screams in this. I mean. The, 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 the reference to like uh, a litany of Phil Spector tunes and other 60s girl groups with the ooey, sha sha, cuckoo, yeah, all the hippies sing together, right. which, he is, which he sings with such joy. He does. It, it is reflexive. It is a retro look, but it's also a, an homage to it, and it's also a sincere love for it. I love his way of like that that that, that thing I read before about. I'm not just saying it's just being that he starts it with "Look here, Marsha," yeah, <laughs> like the my- ultimate white name. Look here, Marsha. I'm not saying this just to be nasty. I sincerely want to fuck the taste out of your mouth. Can you relate? Right. You know, like <laughs> look here, Marsha. But also, what he comes to the end. Whatever you heard about me is true. I change the rules and do what I want to do. I'm in love with God. He's the only way. Because you and I know we got to die someday. If you think I'm crazy, you're probably right. But I'm going to have fun every motherfucking night. If you like to fight, you're a double drag fool. I'm going to another life. How about you? That's the end of the song. So. This has a lot of what we talked about in the first couple of records when he starts doing this. The chant to end yeah. things. The double drag, which he uses quite a bit in sexuality and other songs, I believe, in Uptown. The idea of God again, 
and the idea of the apocalypse, which he plays with in 1999. There, you're going to get a lot more of that in the remaining parts of the song. Like DMSR deals with that, and so does Automatic, and something in the water does not compute. You get a lot of that off end of times concept. It's a fun-loving, seductive, get-over-the-other-girl-by-finding-a-new-one, help-me-Rhonda kind of concept, but it's also he's starting to go into that area where he'll talk about. So he does an excellent job of doing it. Yeah, that's a great point. The end of the song does take it to a different version there. And it's seven and a half minutes long, so he's going to go through some changes in here. He's going to take you through a ride of, of musical stuff. He really does. And it, it, it's pretty brilliant. I love it. It's um, one of my favorite Prince songs. Yeah, I, I you know... We were both like, when we were talking about what songs to play for these, <laughs> yes. we were both like, let's pretend we're married. Yeah. <laughs> we may have disagreed on some things. But, I mean, it's obvious when you talk about Little Red Corvette in 1999. It's less obvious once you get into the, and maybe even automatic, but it's, it's less obvious with a lot of other stuff. But the, the two songs that we were the most strident about, both of us, yeah. on this record, other than the, the singles, were Let's Pretend We're Married and Lady Cab Driver, which we'll yes. get to later, too. Because those two are where, like... They are amazing. Yeah. Just so, anyways, way. let's play it for you. This is sure. uh, Let's Pretend We're Married.
double drag fool. I'm going to another life. How about you? Yeah. If you like to fight, you're a double drag fool. I'm going to another life. How about you? Man, that is such a great. It's it's like one of those songs that you just. It's to me, it's like Bohemian Rhapsody, where you know every little thing going on in there, and just every little nuance and every little accent that he puts in there just works for me. It, I, I can listen to that for another ten minutes, and I also and I pointed it out to you while I was going there there's a part in the song with about a minute and a half left right before he does the bit with Marsha uh, where the, the the keyboard comes down it gets a little dark and I talked about that with with sister or uh, head in those songs not specifically but here it, and then it gets a little dark which he'll he'll work on a little bit more, he'll go in that theme a little bit more with Lady Cab Driver, I believe. Also, with something in the water. Something in the water gets very when it goes down, and then it becomes about I just want to f- you so bad it hurts. Like he just starts getting, he he starts getting desperate in the song. He starts getting he needs that that release, that sexual physical release to get rid of the pain and the hurt. It's just really really deep st- stuff. I think it's way deeper, as you said, than just hey, let's get together, help me, Rhonda, help me get over this girl by like having a meaningless romp. He wants to be with her for the next seven years, but at the it, but at the end, he's just like I, I you, know, you can hear it in the music and his vocal. Well, also, and I think you know we made I keep making this point about Prince using playing all this stuff himself and using all these synthesizers and synthesized drums, but not being chilly distancing or cold like the Depeche Mode kind of music or New Order or those things but when he does want to be distancing it, he doesn't do it just because he's on a synthesizer he'll do it by using uh, pitchy notes that are out of the pitch off pitch off key or uh, out of the key of the song dissonant he'll use dissonances like he did in this moment we're talking about where like but it doesn't come off as chilly just because it's a synthesizer when he wants to do it and he will do it he purposely does it and uses the musical, the notes to do it. Uh, it's it's very, like everything else with him, there is so much specificity. He's not just grooving along. Um, and then, of course, he ends with the chant at the end, so it becomes to him a political, religious statement. This this seduction becomes something imperative to him. And then it will end cold as we just played it, and then the next song, Dance, Music, Sex, Romance, will start which is DMSR, D period, M period, SR period, R period. And this, again, is another one of those philosophical songs, this idea of breaking barriers of race, gender, geography, and using dancing, music, sexuality, physical things to overcome the anguish of the world, which is, again, a lot to jam into a dance song, which is funky as hell, but that's what he does. This side is so perfect. I just love the two-song side. It's, it's sort of a prog rock funk version of what Prince is trying to do with this record. Everybody, everybody, loosen up. Shake it like you just don't care. Never mind your friends, girl, it ain't no sin, to strip right down to your underwear. I say everybody, everybody, screw the masses. We only want to have some fun. I say, do whatever we want, wear lingerie to a restaurant, police ain't got no gun, you don't have to run, everybody all right, dance music, sex, romance. You know, I mean, this song is largely, he, I think he plays a real bass on this song, but he's got the LM1 for the drums, and he's got the synth, with a little bit of like chicken scratch guitar that doesn't even come much to the forefront until the, until the bass drops out to give it space. That's very interesting where he does this. The song kind of grooves, and right around the three-minute mark, he takes the bass out of the song, just pulls it out. 
and then goes to the guitar. And he, late in the song, after the repeated, you know, dance music, sex, romance, he brings in this it's just something to look for, this other kind of low-end P-Funk melody that's really cool. Um, yeah, we should mention P-Funk, which we haven't thus far. And he's definitely started listening to Parliament, I think, around the controversy. Not that he hadn't heard it, but it's starting to infuse into his music. Yes, good point. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're going to make these funk opuses, yeah. you know, it's going to be impossible not to have, like... Well, I mean, he's, he's, he's a kid growing up. There's no way he wasn't. I mean, like all of us. You, you couldn't, yeah. I mean, there's no reason to, but you couldn't have escaped Parliament Funkadelic. If you like funk music at all, they made some of the most important funk music as a band ever. You know? Um, right. And, and, you know, he's very much a, a descendant of that. You know, making these great, almost orchestral funk songs with these, like, all kinds of instruments and voices, you know, every bit, if not even funkier than P-Funk. You know, it's an incredible... And this is a great example of Yeah, that. yeah. And he's clearly very influenced by that. The spaceship themes, everything else, like... Right. Uh, the talking, the chant, the talking over things, uh, the multitude of vocals and stuff, the, the, just the stew of it. Right. You know? And of the, course, none of that happens without James Brown, but you know... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, the 70s version of that is probably... James Brown is a lot more stripped. Uh, James Brown strips everything down and creates a musical style, and then everyone builds on that, the way Chuck Berry did. Chuck yeah. Berry makes something, and then everyone builds on that. That whole concept of how funk works doesn't happen without James Brown understanding the inside-out nature of it, the, yes. the stop, the starts, how much the holes make the funk, because... There's nothing like James Brown before James Brown. There's music that is groovy and funky, but not the the whiplash head snappingness of funk music doesn't happen until those James Brown and the JB's records. Right, and of and course I think of. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, you, you you see it in the sessions with him and in videos of him with that band, the film of it from the early days, telling guys, "No, take this beat out. I know you want to play that. Don't play that. Make it backwards. Leave that hole there." He had this concept of what turns out to be what makes up funk music oh it's just so groundbreaking and yes you know unheard before that time you know it's it's, a completely new music no question incredible people i don't know if people realize what how much james brown changed everything in music but he as a composer was so world bending you know yeah culture bending conceptually bent i mean but anyways so I would say one last thing about DMSR before you play it so getting back to Parliament for just a second so there's a section in this song where it breaks down and, and, he, and you could hear them go DMSR which is a whole other melody and that reminds me very much of Parliament there's a lot yeah. of those songs that have that kind of style and Prince will do that later in uh, I was just looking it up while you are talking there the, uh, on Parade that song New Position and where he, he spells out P-U-S-S-Y, P-U-S-S-Y. Oh, it's yeah. like on the bottom of it. But it's weird because you don't hear it unless you listen to it six, seven, eight times. Then you realize you can't hear it without it. It's part of the song but not up front. He buries a lot of stuff that people would just jam down your throat, but he doesn't do it. He puts it in there. This song's got so many layers just like um, let's pretend we're married, but it's a lot more fat back and halftime and it's kicking. It's, it's one of the funkier tracks of his early career. You'll hear Lisa Coleman singing on this song too. You know, on, on 1999, you heard Lisa Coleman and Jill Jones and and, uh, and Des Dickerson on, like, Little Red Corvette. Lisa Coleman's there. Uh, quite a few of them sing on uh, Automatic. But I, I was looking it up. Other than those guitar solos Des Dickerson plays on Little, on Little Red Corvette, there's not a note on this record that's played by another person other than Prince. This is one record where he plays everything. The people show up in the videos, and there are singers on this record. Des Dickerson, Lisa Coleman, Jill Jones, Wendy Melvoin, Vanity, 
a lot of them sing on free uh but there isn't a note on this record other than those guitar parts on on little red corvette that is played by anybody but prince this one is him you want to talk about like an epic bit of work yep and the need his need when he's thinking orgasm everybody's thinking orgasm yeah. because uh no pickle <laughs> so <laughs> no pickle on this, this. Is dance music sex romance
Thus ends the first two sides of one of the great records in the 1980s, 1999. One of Prince's great masterpieces, DMSR. A couple of things that uh, we remembered as this played. Uh, Adam had talked 
last week about well, we both talked about the uh, the non de plumes, the other names used for writing and producing other bands, including the Time and the Vanity Six. And in that one breakdown, he does say, uh, "Jamie Starr is a thief." Yeah. Um, it's time to check your clock. And then Vanity Six is so sweet, he drops their name in there. And then it's time to take a bite of my purple rock, which I love, you know, throwing the purple in there. Uh, so he's promoting and <laughs> his own record, other records, and other acts. And um, just the, I love the breakdown, the end part where he talks about Puerto Ricans, Japanese, everybody get, you know, he, again, a very global, global fun message uh, in that song. But, um, and then Lisa Coleman, for some reason, screaming for her life at the end. You know, again, I was talking about like the darkness. There's nothing in that song, but there are there are moments on this record, and you'll hear it with Lady Cab Drive. We'll talk about that next week. Of 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 real interesting changes in mood right in the middle of it. But that that's just a flat out great funk track. Oh, it's it's fantastic. Uh, and we want to play a song now. That is one of my favorite things that I. I remember it from when I was younger, vaguely, uh, and when I got this record, it really reminded me of this song. It. We're going to talk about and play some songs that aren't on the record now. This is a B-side. The rest are sort of unreleased track. This was released. This was the B-side to uh, 1999 when it came out. Uh, it's, it's called How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. It was a, a single for several people. Uh, I, Alicia Keys Alicia Keys yeah. had a version of this uh, Stephanie Mills Joshua Redman did a jazz version of this uh, there's quite a few more it was performed on American Idol this is just a phenomenal song but all these versions of it and Alicia Keys' version is pretty good it's very good but none of them it's on her debut album her first album Songs in A Minor <clears throat> but none of them touch Prince's multiple there's multiple versions on this record of this song one is the b-side version which i want to play because i think it's it, it's a perfect composition wonderful um there's also a lot a, a version on him him just in the studio by himself or at, in his living room at kiowa just playing it it's about a six or seven minute version of it that is is absolutely just it's, breathtakingly beautiful it really is uh, I, I thought about playing that version because it's so beautiful but I really wanted to point out, I've talked about this in several other podcasts, his piano playing and how outrageous it is. This song is a is proof. It, there's no one on the song but him, uh, and then some. Vo- he's uh, recorded some voices, I'm pretty sure. It's, just, right. it's all him on the right. song, just playing piano and some voices. I don't think there's anybody else on the song, nope. personnel-wise. And it's a classic blues, jazz riff that he takes... Now I've seen him do this live too, where they bring the grand piano and he does different, thir- you know, different songs, and he'll do this where he'll play variations on the piano with it. So each time he does the pass through the blues uh, riff, he comes back to it, and the vocal performance on this is just—I don't even—it's hard for me to explain. The first time I heard this, I just couldn't even believe it was the same person. He—he—he he, he comes in in falsetto, then he breaks it back down. He does whispering parts in this. Yeah, I thought we'd look pretty cute together ourselves. Like little things he does, and he's doing it while he's playing. You can picture him just playing because when you listen to the other versions that are on this box set, you could hear where he doesn't do it. So clearly he's doing it off the top of his head, and he kept this version for the B-side, and it's the quintessential version of this song. I mean, yeah, and it is a song that is a hit for other people. I mean, it's a uh, – I'm pretty sure the Alicia Keys version charts, although I don't remember how um... – but even if it's not, it will be someday because it's just a great song. Someone yeah. will record this song and make it a huge hit because it's just waiting to be done. And it won't be done better than this, but it's, an, it's a, a catchy, great, great song. It's, uh, it's got some gospel to it. Yes. Because that's a lot of 
you know, where he comes from too, but just a guy sitting at the piano and then singing. That's really all there is here. Um, he's layered some other vocals to build the choruses and moments to have, have dynamic moments right. happen. How come you don't? Yeah. You know, that kind of but thing. basically, you just got a guy sitting in his piano. So this is, this is not on the record. You talk about the quality of material that he has that is just because he doesn't want to put it on the record because he's got other ideas for this record and I completely understand it. This is, you know, this is no synthesizers here. It's just a grand piano. Yep. Um, so check out Prince. How come you don't call me anymore? Sometimes, oh no no, 
Yeah, you put that on almost anybody else's on eighty percent of the records ever made is the best song on the record. So or maybe good. higher than eighty percent. I don't know. I mean, it's like <laughs> it's it's so good, but he he got no use for it because he's got other things in mind. He just got shit he wants to do, and and he's going to do it, which is understandable. You know, like like that would have fit shit. great with a vagina. It, that that those two songs would have fit great on that record. They're very traditional rock gospel blues songs. And but that is just a sort of but tour de force vocal. Yeah, I mean it's, <laughs> and even the end in the version that's on this box set, uh, there's a long out like he plays with that. Why don't you pick up the phone? And then he does a whole thing with, uh, you know, this one lazy dime. Like he he goes like into this other section where clearly there there's a fade out because he probably just kept going. That's probably one of those run the tape. And let me go. And then he thought, okay, this is good. <laughs> I'll fade this out because it's a B-side. But this could have gone on for – this version itself could have gone on for – Yeah, I mean we, like the, the, the version we have. The other version is six or seven minutes long. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's beautiful. It's incredible. But I wanted to play the one tight with oh, – Because the vocal composition on it, the perfection, the funk of that version right there. And it's so spontaneous. It seems spontaneous to me. Yeah, I mean it's just – He's on another level. That's a that's an incredible song to just you know. I guess it's a B side, so it's not really buried. But uh. let me ask you: Is that something you could possibly do, piano playing wise and singing, without doing both at the same time? Is it something you could do? Yeah. In other words, could you? What he's doing there, he's accenting the piano and and coming off of it and doing things with the vocals. I always pictured him doing that live, right? Piano and, and oh, and I'm voice. sure he did do it. Live. I don't even know why like, would he need to. I don't know. I was just asking as a professional if you laid something like that down. Is it something you could you could pull off as naturally and as spontaneous sounding as as that sounds? That yeah, sounds. But, but most people would have to do it separately because they can't play that well and sing that well <laughs> right. at the same time. Because the, one of the problems of doing piano is you get bleed because it's a, it's an acoustic instrument. You can get bleed from other things. Right. That sounds like a real grand piano, not a synthesizer, not oh. a sampled version. So you're going to get. You got a mic stuck in that somewhere, so you're going to get bleed from a vocal, especially back in 1981 or whenever it was recorded. And by the same token on your vocal, you're going to get bleed from the piano. So for most people, they'd want to do it separately yeah. because they wouldn't. They, that way, they'd be able to cut together because it's too hard to sing. But for him, I, I doubt he did that because why would he need to? He can sing that well and play that well. Yep. With one hand tied behind his back, so you might as well do it together. I mean, the the, the proof of it is the other version, which is definitely live. The, oh, yeah, the yeah. version that's on there because it's just him sitting around and it's every bit as good as that. So why not? Yeah, I mean it's it's ridiculous. Uh, okay, so here's another story for you. So Prince had wanted to mentor a girl group forever. He had always wanted to mentor a girl group. He, I think he got some. Uh, there was something about him seeing a Star Is Born with Barbara Streisand when he was younger, and right. he just always Christopher, you know, and having listened to all that Phil Spector shit, he had just always, you know, all the Motown stuff too. He had always wanted, you know, along with doing a funk band like the Time to work out that side of it. He wanted to do a girl group, and of course, in, in Prince's mind, a girl group involves you know three women on stage singing in their underwear, of course. <laughs> so he, I mean, he's singing in his underwear, so it was good for the goose. He comes up with a band and. 
They're originally going to be called the Hookers. Um, <laughs> so and uh, he finds a singer, Denise Matthews, uh, and he tries to convince her that she should change her name as the lead singer of the Hookers to Vagina. Right. Um, and maybe the song Vagina, which is not written for them, is his part of writing a song about the character that she's – I don't know. Yeah, he had but, that in his head. Yeah. So it's very possible. So, you know, but she says, okay, I'm happy to do that. It, this will be a great thing, but you should change your name to Dick. <laughs> and, hey, touche. And, and, and he decides that's not a good idea, so she says, okay, well, then I'm not going to be Vagina. Right. Uh, and they, they eventually settle one way or another on Vanity, and they name the band Vanity Six, the six having to do with the number of breasts that would be on stage at any given time. Oh, yes. Um, so this song was originally written for the Hookers, uh, there, or let's put it this way: there was a version of this song that was originally written for the Hookers. It's called "Money Don't Grow on Trees." This is not that version. This it seems like, from what I read about this, he wrote another version for himself to perform, uh, and that's this version, which he demoed and sang himself. This doesn't seem like it's a demo version for them. It seems like it was his version of the song. Uh, because I, I think there's another recording of this that was more written yes. demo for them eventually. Yes, right, yeah. This version is the version he wrote uh, seemingly for himself. Uh, to do. Yeah. But from a male standpoint, because I thought the original concept of this was kind of like diamonds are a girl's best friend kind of idea. Like, hey, if you don't have any money, don't look this way. Like, I'm interested. Huh. Yeah, you, That kind of thing. You know, having some fun with that. And then he, he flips it around as a, as, a, as a male character here. I mean, and it is a great little catchy Modern take on maybe a Motown tune. Oh yeah, um, that you know I you could have seen any of those bands singing back then if they were starting now. Or you also could see someone like New Edition having done a version of this song. They didn't, but I mean, right. this could be a song for like. I think it, it, later on with Graffiti Bridge and Tevin Campbell, he wanted to do like a, a kind new of a edition new edition type, kind right, of yeah. his own sort of uh, New Jack singer thing with that kid. Right. Um, and he was always thinking of different musical forms and how he could make something that worked in that musical form, whether it's the funk of the time or the girl group of Vanity Six. And this is a song originally composed for the hookers. This is a different version of it that Prince does, and we want to play it for you because it's just it's, no a great little, it. it's a great little tune. Yeah, and it's been in the vault for, as you said, 38, 39 years, and yeah. no one's heard it. And it's this, again, what a gift. Not only literally, thank you, sir, but what a gift that we have the opportunity to listen to these songs. Because, again, as I said earlier, it's like listening to a brand-new Prince album, but I'm like 20 years old again. You know what I mean? And listening, it's not Prince from 2012, 2014. That Prince was great, too. But the, the Prince from this era yeah. is... <laughs> All different animals. The one we grew up with. So to hear new music by him. And this stuff is so good. You know, it's, it's very, like you said, it's very disappointing sometimes you get a Bruce Springsteen box set or whatever box set. And the songs are good. They're fine. But as you said, there is a reason why they didn't make the records. They still, they're still good in their own way. And you get to hear how the artist is developing and how, what he chooses to be good enough or not. But in this case, it seems always to be good with Prince. All of these songs are just have total merit. Yeah, I mean, and this this one is it's just a great. This one is not one of the ones he did in Kiowa, Kiowa Trail at home in Minnesota. In Minnesota, like, right? November, sometime in November, nineteen eighty one. Uh, check this one out, Prince. Money don't grow on trees. My 
Side of this world, that, and that's like, 
That's Prince playing live drums, live bass, and a bunch of different guitars, and singing all the parts himself, too. That, that couldn't sound any more like a band song, too. It yeah. just Even the way the vocals like are chatting back and forth with each other mm-hmm. sounds like it's him and Des Dickerson, but it's not. That's just all Prince. And that's real drums for the first time in this podcast, because uh, in 1999, he really does. He, he, as you said, he might or he does put drums with the Lin, but the Lin is the main instrument of uh, what's on 1999. Yeah. In that case, he's kicking it. And, and then we heard some hand clapping on Vagina. But on that song... That guitar playing is crazy good. It's clean. It's that Telecaster again, and he's wailing all the way up to the end there, doing these cool little things the whole time. Uh, it gets by you sometimes. You listen to it because it's such a nice, poppy, you know, uh, funky tune, but what he's doing on guitar there is, again, understated. He's not in your face doing it, but he's leading all over the joint in there. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's cool. so relaxed and in, the, in the pocket, and he's got so many ideas of what to play. But not only that, but how the different parts interact with each other. That's yes. the thing that blows me away about his guitar playing work. when he's doing this is because... He has enough of a concept of the end that all the parts that are being laid down in the middle relate to one another. Mm-hmm. There's, they're, they're, t- they're talking back and forth as if it's guys sitting around playing, especially on this one and on Vagina. But it happens all throughout all these recordings. They're just a little more stripped back, and they don't, they're not so dominated by the, the keys because there's no keys on either of those two right. songs. But it does the same thing with keys, too. There's never any just key line, as you yeah. said, over and over again. He's, they're live and moving, and they're fluid, and they're organic, and all those things. Yeah, it, it's, it's really wild to me. Um, so okay, so we got one sense. more. We got yes. to wind up this podcast, and we'll come back next week and finish up 1999 and finish up playing you some more of really cool extras, especially next week's extras. There's some really great, important Prince songs in them. Yep. Uh, but you know, we've talked a lot about his work he does with other bands. Uh, we've talked about the time we played some of the time from their first album. Uh, before this record, he also did another record with the time. What time is it? Um, during the making and the time he's creating 1999 he's also creating what time is it with the time and he's creating uh the first vanity six album um and we wanted to play you one of the songs off that that comes out just uh, a couple i think vanity six comes out august 11th of 82 what time is it comes out august 25th 1982 and then uh 1999 comes out august 27th 1982. So they're all in this period of time. He's working mm-hmm. on all this. He probably, I don't know for sure. I'm, we're going to play you the single from uh, the Vanity Six record, which is called Nasty Girl, which is out of print now, this record. I had a hard time. I could not find it. Your brother finally found it. Yeah, thank you, but- PJ. Went to, you know, found it. Yeah, it was very hard to find this record. And then one funny thing about it, Nasty Girl, big hit. Every club I went to played it. Oh, yeah, at this that is time. a huge song. I, I'm not sure why it's. I had. N- I don't know anything about this. I just noticed I could not find it. Yes. It's not on anything. Nope. It's not on uh, Spotify even. Um, yeah, I don't know why it's so hard to find. I guess it's out of print for some reason or another. It's uh, it's a great song. It, it, I'm, I'm assuming this is all Prince it's playing all on Prince. it. Maybe there's some of the guys from the time on this one. I don't know. But uh, I assume it's all him. And uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm almost positive that he's playing all the instruments on this record and did all the vocal. He might even be, there might be some vocals in the background there of his too. I, I'm not on this one. I don't no. know. Yeah, I don't know. But, I couldn't find a listing for that. That's that's usually pretty well documented, but I couldn't find anything about who plays on this one. But this is you know, there's a couple of like sex shooters on here. Well, you did say sex shooters on this record, right? We no, don't, I don't know because it was an Apollonia song. It's from a single. We, I think Purple when, Rain. When Vanity left, when Denise Matthews left the band, she was replaced with Apollonia, which is why in Purple Rain the band is Apollonia Six. Right. Oh, should we mention also, and it's very important. So around 1999's release, Prince was on the cover of Rolling Stone and he only insisted on being on there with Vanity. 
And that's a famous cover. And I remember when I was trying to, you know, uh, make it and I was in a band, I was, whatever girl I was with, oh, you're going you're to be on Rolling Stone because I always thought that was the coolest thing. But in essence, what he's doing is he's doing what he shouting her out in DMSR. He's saying, I'm Prince, but I'm also a mentor. I'm also a Svengali. I'm also a Phil Spector getting the. And so it's so cool. And then on top of that, which when he she was. She was. No, he was. No, he, he was. was yeah. And she was supposed to be his ingenue. And, and interestingly enough, she refused to be in Purple Rain for some religious reasons. I think she became born again and she just – is that when she became born again? I don't know. Something, she refused to be in Purple Rain and they had to replace her. And he was heartbroken over it, absolutely devastated. In fact, there's a lot of songs, Another Lonely Christmas, a few songs that he did extra tracks from Purple Rain that are about vanity. And – he was really, really heartbroken because he really felt like they could be a team and that he could build it up. And anyway, this is this was their one record, and like you said, it's out of print. Well, that's what uh, on the tour for this album, which caused a lot of stress for me. Everyone, uh, one of the things about having other bands is that it, it created an outlet for all this music for him, for all this extra time, for all this creativity he had making other records. Uh, it also provided him with opening bands. This tour that he goes on for 1999, the opening band is Vanity Six. In front of a curtain, behind the curtain are all the members of the time playing the music. Right. Then Vanity Six would finish her set, probably about a half hour short set, and then the time would play, and then Prince and the Revolution. It was like a review. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the time were insanely good already, and they had been, unlike the Prince's band in some ways, they had been playing together more, and they were a re- white-hot funk band They at put that a point. lot of pressure on him yeah, on that there were There was a problems at those times. One of the things yes. they resented was that, that they would open for him, and he would come on stage after, he would come talk to them after the shows, don't do that anymore, that's too good, don't do that. And when they got to Los Angeles, this happened more than once, when they got to Los Angeles and to New York, the time was off the bill. They didn't play those CDs yes, except yeah. behind the curtain playing for Vanity. And this is, by the way, this is the foundation of what they did. They used that in Purple Rain. Yeah. In the film. They yeah. used that competition. Competition wasn't real, but it was real on stage. Yeah. Because I mean, they, pushed, they pushed the revolution. Yeah. Well, the yeah. competition was real. It's just that Prince wasn't the opening band like he is in the movie. Right. And he was the star. He was, he was in but control. But they were, they were insanely good they at the really time. Were. Yeah. But, uh, we want to, we got to leave this and we'll come back next week and do some more uh, and then we're going to in the weeks after that we're going to do some other stuff um, then we'll come back to Prince then we'll come back to Prince because we're going to keep doing there's so much to do with Prince we don't want to just do Prince for three months but <laughs> it'll can. take three months to do all the Prince <laughs> that's um, true because we're both like w- when we started this we both realized we were rabidly excited about doing more Prince stuff the only problem is I wish we had box sets for all these records yeah. and we'll have to wait <laughs> well I got some cool stuff that I think I'm going to introduce to you from when we get to your favorite record so okay it, cool um so we're going to finish off with Nasty Girl. This is Vanity Six or Prince or The Time. I don't know who the fuck's playing on it, but, <laughs> but it's a great song. I mean, and it, there was the – what was that song later on? Uh, the I'm a Slave for You, which is Pharrell and the Neptunes produced for Britney Spears. But, man, that song sounds a lot like this song. Yeah, a lot of songs sound They don't like credit it as Prince. but And Vanity is credited as a songwriter on this song, but she's not. This is all Prince. It just oh, yeah. On the record, they credit it to Vanity because he really wanted people to think these were all these things. Sure. He didn't take credit at the time for a lot of them, nope. but it was all him. It's probably Jamie Starr, one of those. And, by the way, we should mention that Vanity has passed. She she died. Oh yeah, she died a few years ago. She was only fifty seven, I think. She was yeah, she was a little younger than him. Yeah, Yeah. well, that's when he died. He was fifty eight. Jeez. All right, so Vanity Six. So that wraps up part one of our nineteen ninety nine retrospective. We'll 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 playing some really great stuff in the next podcast. So until then, I'm James. I'm Adam. Peace. Late nasty girl. 